want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's a privilege to be with God's people in God's house. I appreciated uh, Brother Leon's prayer where he, where he uh, talked about how privileged we are to have had all this exposure to the Word. Well, we're a privileged people, truly. This morning, the message title is The Remnant. Now, this may have been influenced by my wife's recent reading of, of uh, This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Um, I think it's, in my mind, it's uh, more influenced by this thought of the, the greater picture of, of all the evil influences that are seem to be seem to be uh, building around us. And this morning I don't want a message of gloom and doom. I don't want to share a message of gloom and doom uh, because it isn't for the Christian. It isn't gloom and doom for the Christian. Um, rather, I'd like to share a message of how to respond to the gloom and doom. How to how to uh, fortify our position. How to, not just fortify, but to, uh, to go on the offense. Now, I don't feel like I have any great big new ideas here to share with you. I don't. But all I have is what has been shared, and I hope it will encourage us again. Reading out of Romans 11, 1 through 5. If you'd like to turn your Bibles there, Romans 11, 1 through 5. Paul here is addressing um, the Jews, I believe, but it's, it's very much applicable to us as well. I say, then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I'm also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not? What the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars. And I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And thinking of the remnant, there's a remnant today as well. There was a remnant in Paul's day. There was a remnant in Elijah's day. And there will always be a remnant according to the election of grace. Those that reach out, who take and embrace God's grace in their lives. To think of Thinking of, of Elijah here, and that account is in 1 Kings 19, 19, 1-15. And let's just go ahead and read that quickly. If you'd like moving your Bibles to 1 Kings 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab... Yeah, I would have I would have liked to have heard Ahab's version of the story here. How did Ahab go about telling Jezebel how that you know Elijah called him to this meeting on the uh, 
on Mount, uh, let me see if I can find the name of the mountain here, Mount Carmel. I called them to the meeting on Mount Carmel and uh, Baal, you know, the, the 400 prophets of Baal came and how that Baal just didn't respond and didn't respond. And, and you know, Elijah gave him plenty of time. I don't know how, how uh, Ahab must have flavored his story to Jezebel if he was like, you know, really, Elijah really did put on a good show or really Elijah's God must be, you know, the only God or Elijah just, uh, you know, he's quite a magician. I don't know how he must have flavored his story to Jezebel. But regardless, the truth was is that at the end of the day, after Baal's prophets had tried and called out to God and Elijah had egged them on and told them maybe their God's asleep and they had gone ahead and cut themselves and all of this, nothing happened. Absolutely zilch. And so Elijah, you know, he does his thing. He makes it difficult for his God to come down and bring fire down and burn the, burn the sacrifice. And he brings up precious water. Remember, there had been three years of famine or of drought. And he brings up precious water and dumps it around here. You don't expend a lot of resource if you don't think you're going to get a return. And he did all of that. And then, you know, he calls out to God and what happened? Fire came down from heaven and it, it ate up the sacrifice. ate up, you know, does it say even the stones? But it ate up the water. And uh, it really, it really, uh, God, well, let's look what it says here. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Wow, you know, what an answer compared to these, uh, compared to Baal, that lifeless God. You know, I don't know if, if Baal was, if you look into, into the demonic world, I think there is a sense of life there in Baal. Um, but I think that God stayed whatever demonic activity was there and made so nothing could happen. And uh, when God spoke, He spoke in a way that was unmistakable. And of course, the, the prophets of Baal were, were killed then. And, and then came the rain. And in the meantime, Elijah beat Ahab back to the palace. And I would imagine by this time, Elijah's uh, feeling that maybe things are going to go in the right direction for Israel again. So Ahab told, all, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And I'm not sure why Jezebel gave Elijah a warning. Um, I, I have to wonder if maybe Jezebel really didn't, was really scared to do anything to Elijah, and so she maybe gave him a backdoor message so Elijah would have a chance to move on. I don't know. Um, but she told him that if he's around, she's going to make his life like those of the prophets. And when he saw that he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. 
And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for him. I see a man here that's discouraged. He was tired out. He was, he was you know, really done with all of this. He'd done his job. He had been on the run for three years. There had been this miraculous victory. And now here's Jezebel again holding the trump card, so as to say. And he arose and did eat and drink and went into the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights into Horeb, Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, here's a very special passage. The Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out, and stood in the entering in the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. He repeats himself, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I wonder how many times that paragraph went through his mind. You know, in 40 days plus, I imagine that when he woke up, when he went to sleep, when he was there musing, you know, looking out of his cave, when he was watching the birds come and go with his food, uh, let's see, the birds weren't coming and going, he lived on that food. But anyways, when he was living there, I, I have to wonder how many times this very thought went through his mind. You know, the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life. Yeah, I imagine it went through his, his mind thousands of times. And the Lord said unto him, Yeah, right, Elijah. No, he didn't say that. The Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. The Lord said unto him, Go, I have a job for you. Move on. Be faithful to what I tell you to do. You know, we've been looking at Elijah's position here, kind of imagining what it must have been like. He's tired. He's discouraged. I think he felt very lonely. He was the only one holding the fort in his mind. I'm not sure what he thought of Obadiah and the prophets that Obadiah had housed. Remember those, those Obadiah met Elijah there in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And 
And uh, Elijah told him to go back and tell King Ahab that he's going to meet him that day. And Obadiah told him, uh, don't do this to me. You know, you'll have me killed because you'll leave in the spirit and I'll be left here having told Ahab that you're going to meet him after Ahab's been looking for you for these many years or for these several years, but as many, many in, in terms of not having water. And, uh, and oh, but I also told him at that time, don't you remember, don't you, hasn't been told you I've housed a hundred prophets in a cave? <coughs> so, you know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what Elijah's thought was there towards Obadiah and towards those, those prophets. It could be that he felt like there was really no action taking place there. Uh, I don't hold it, you know, certainly wouldn't hold it against Elijah or against Obadiah or any of those. They're, they had their interactions and, and uh, the Lord was calling them to different places. Regardless, somehow or other, Maybe they didn't have the communication we do today. Maybe that's why Elijah was feeling so lonely. He couldn't Facebook his friend. He couldn't send him a text or, or give him a call. Um, he was lonely here. And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And he had been. Very jealous. And like I said, he must have really felt like, like King Ahab's household was holding the trump card yet. You know, no matter what happened, no matter how God, how strong God has showed himself to his people, which he had showed, showed himself so very strong there in Mount Carmel, it must have seemed to Elijah by this time that no matter what happened, King Ahab's going to stay in power and he's going to keep and him and his wife, Jezebel, that wicked woman are going to keep directing the affairs of Israel and just keep on bringing calamity. And there's really nothing that can be done. It must have seemed to him that he had reached his peak and there was nowhere else to go. <clears throat> but God tells him to go. To think of that verse this morning in, in Acts, we had in our Sunday school lesson, Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. I have to think about, you know, we have to, to benefit from Elijah's, this really uh, quite amazing story here. To benefit of it, from it, we have to put it in perspective how it'll work for us today because that's what Christianity is all about. It's, it's alive and we, have to, we can learn from the past even like Paul was talking about here, he put into Romans that uh, he, he brought into Romans a story of, of Elijah. And so Paul was making connection there. And we, because of the life in Scripture, life in, of Christ directing people and the way he keeps on directing people, we can do the same thing. We can bring this and make application for ourselves. And that's a beautiful part of Christianity because our Lord is alive. Um, so Paul's spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And I think our spirit sh should stir within us today when we see our society seemingly given wholly to idolatry. Uh, there's, there are good things, but there's certainly enough bad news to go around. 
there's certainly enough bad news to make our spirits stir within us. You know, I feel depressed after being hanitized for a bit or having heard a liberal piece on fresh air. And, and we need to ex- exercise real caution on what we take in, what we listen to, what radio programs we listen to. We have to exercise. Some of us can maybe take more than others. Um, it seems like I can take less and less than I used to be able to take. You know, I, I feel depressed. Or I, it, my spirit stirs within me when I see the glorification of evil in the public square in the very halls of power, the glorification of evil and the the imposition of evil onto the public. My spirit stirs within me and should stir within us all when we think of Halloween and see the the awful awful, uh, mask and so forth that are put out. Um, Mask that that really look demonic, that they must have been styled, that the the designers must have had some insight into, to makes us, makes me believe that the the designers had some insight into the demonic world. There's there's so much, so much uh, evil uh, built into those masks, many of those. The public affirmation of evil lifestyle can feel overwhelming to me. And I believe we our spirit should really stir within us when we see this. There is a present danger. We have a present danger. Psalm, Psalms 11 says this, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations be destroyed, and I think that's what starts concerning me, are the foundations actually being destroyed. There are dangers there. Rejection of God that we presently face. Rejection of God. Denial of the natural evidence of the glory of God. I think is a very real danger we face. Psalm 19, and I'd like to read this psalm, make some comments on it. Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And he's talking about the firmament, about the beauties of heaven. The, I think the stars, uh, the, the uh, sun, moon. Uh, what we see when we step outside on a, on a clear day or a clear night. Their line has gone out through the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom, the sun is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven. We know how that is from the east to the west, his circuit unto the ends of it. And there's nothing hid from the heat thereof. And so uh, the chief musician, David is saying here, the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. And yet, you know, we have the danger we've already faced for a number of years now is people denying that glory in the universe that God has set up for himself and saying this is not true. They're an absolute denial of it, saying somehow it just happened. Denial of the wisdom of God. 
Psalm, then verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And we have, in our present day, denial of all of this, the wisdom of God, turning away from the eternal principles of God and godliness. Instead of saying the law of the Lord is perfect, they're saying there is no perfect. There is no truth. There is no eternal uh, foundation for morality. It's all it's all uh, contemporary. It's all relevant to what people think of today or make it to be today. And because of that, we of course have a lot of a lot of uh, misfortune come that's brought up brought upon ourselves. The fear of the Lord is clean, and then we have this thing of which I've touched on: moral relativism, unbelief. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Proverbs 26.12 says, Seest thou man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. And Proverbs 26.16 says, The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. You have people here that are so sure of themselves, so sure they got it right. And... and uh, the uh, proverb writer addressed this people. He said, that person is wiser or is more stubborn in his own, own wisdom than seven men. We're saying that seven men with reason can't, can't bring him around. And I think we see a lot of that in our society today. People that have figured out for themselves where they're at outside of the word of God. And there seems to be no way of bringing them around and that should give us cause for concern. Because whether or not they're right, they can still render a lot of damage. Um, even if their philosophy will die with will die with them. Going along with that is the the danger of adopting, and this comes closer to us, adopting the social norms as our own. Or compromising or bending our beliefs to accommodate them. And I think if we look at this thing fairly and squarely of moral relativism, of unbelief, of denial of the wisdom of God, we look at Christianity as a whole. If we step back 80 years, look at Christianity as a whole, we'll see that these steps were a progression. We didn't end up today. The church in America didn't end up today where it's at in one fell swoop. It was a progression. And I'm going to start where I think it, I'm going to put down this progression as I, as, I, as I see it. And you may, I'm sure you'll have other thoughts, but at least it'll be a, 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 a way of, a, a way of uh, making us think, hopefully, and, and, and viewing, viewing where we're at and, in looking back. First of all, 
there was a rejection of the headship order as described in 1 Corinthians. And I'm saying this is for the church. As described in 1 Corinthians 11, God, man, and woman. And along with that, I believe, was the, was the headship covering um, that, that was a symbol of that of uh, accepting that that headship order. From there, we moved into the 60s, and I don't have all these dates down, but there. Um, but definitely in the 60s, we saw a rise then of of um, hedonism, as it's known, or that the the pursuit of selfish pleasure, this pursuit of or the the idea of if it feels good, do it. The promiscuity, fornication, and even the encouragement of it, uh, is, uh, of it uh, propagated in our public institutions of learning. And from there, we moved into divorce and remarriage, live-in lifestyles. And this opened the door then because divorce and remarriage, live-in lifestyles, the pursuit of, of one's own pleasure brought about a demand for abortion. And abortion became legalized then. And I believe that was in the early 70s. And then we moved into what is today uh, same-sex marriage being legalized. You know, just back in 86, uh, the federal court, I believe, had had uh, had stated that that uh, the states didn't have the right to authorize same same sex marriage. Now the federal court is working in complete uh, opposite of that and enforcing the states to recognize that. And we sit here this morning, or maybe sit back in our chairs. We'll look at the news and wonder, where is all of this going? What's the end of all of this? You know, what's happening? But there's a real news. I look at the news today, I read it, and I'm amazed at how much what I consider trivial news there is. Not really real news. You know, what's, what about the budget in the United States? Isn't that some real news that should be brought out a little better and uh, dwelt on. And there's other real news out there that seems more important, much more important to me than what you're seeing on the popular news outlets. Um, but I think that the real news for us as Christian lies much deeper than that yet. And the gospel is moving forward. Souls are being saved. Lives are being changed by the power of Christ today. It's happening. There's a lot to be discouraged about when reading the news, it's true. Or for that matter, for when you're reading the National Parks brochure on the formation of rocks. You're going back to that thought of what the, the is being propagated in the public square. And you read the, the National Parks publication on the formation of these rocks and and how that they're, you know, how they date them, and how they're billions of years old, and so forth. And my first thought is that this is pure nonsense. And my second thought is, is uh, 
are people really believing this nonsense? And then my third thought is, is you know, when you see the people around you, they're like, oh brother, people are believing this nonsense and what can be done? What can the righteous do if, it, if their foundations be destroyed? And I think that is found so foundational, that creation that principle. But there is real news. People are being saved and, and the gospel is going forward. And you don't find our public news outlets, our popular public news outlets, focusing on that. You don't even find them focusing on the activity of Christianity and how they're reaching out to help out people in the Ebola crisis. They don't, they don't cover the faith of that person who's willing to give his life to help out the other people suffering from Ebola. Well, God has a message for us today, the same message as he had for Elijah, and that is be faithful. Go, move ahead. Return on the way to the, of the wilderness of Damascus. God is saying, I'm still in control. You know, this thing might look like it's going all backwards, but I'm still in control. And what will happen, I already know. And your job is to keep on going. I still have 7,000 in Israel. I still have a lot of people out there that haven't, knee, haven't bowed their knee, knee to Baal and mouths that haven't kissed him. I still have a lot of people out there. I was encouraged here just recently. I was reading a, uh, the Lynchburg Business News. How many of you got that little publication, Lynchburg Business? I have a few. Uh, if you'll look, open it up, I was expecting the same old, same old. The businesses that are thriving, the businesses that are facing some pressures, essays about the movers and the shakers and all this kind of thing that I generally quickly scan over in Lynchburg. But I happened on an article that, actually a couple articles that were pretty, uh, pretty uh, that were noteworthy and encouraging. One was about some of our friends down here in, in Gladys who have a farm that are opening up a public, uh, that are opening up a, a food, uh, natural food store there at Cornerstone. And their, their story of how they came to Gladys and so forth, I found interesting. But uh, another I found interesting was about a young man named Chris Devlin. And uh, this, I'm going to read a bit about this young man. And this just goes to show that there's, there's good news happening. There's, there's, lives are still being changed. And, uh, you know, in spite of all this, this oppression of evil, God is changing lives one at a time. People are listening to his call. Chris Devlin has a knack for investing. I don't know if I'm good at it because I love it or if I love it because I'm good at it, he said. The whole idea of compounding it, the whole idea of compounding, it made me realize that if you stick with it and do it through time and make wise decisions, that you could pursue any dream you want. But before he founded 1311 Capital, which currently manages more than five million in assets, he quickly realized that making money wasn't his dream or their dream. Within an aging house downtown at 1310 Church Street, the operations center of Lighthouse Ministries, Devlin occupies an upstairs bedroom for his company's headquarters while a new office location is under construction. 
Devlin moved to Lynchburg shortly after graduating from Penn State in 2007 to work as a nuclear engineer for Riva. He also got his real estate and real estate appraisal license and began buying and selling property locally. As he was analyzing options for building his wealth, he began to weigh benefits between investing in properties and in stocks. I immediately just kind of understood that these were businesses, there are companies there that are earning money that can be bought and sold and you're going to make a piece of it, Devlin recalled. Anyways, it says during the recession area, era, why he, he uh, bought up a lot of stock, he stormed the gates, so as to speak, and, and did well because he, he uh, had a pretty good knack for making money. Despite his success, Devlin found himself conflicted. He became a Christian during his senior year of college, and although he said he was giving generously and serving others through the church, Devlin feared that wealth might change him. When I was reading my bio, through my Bible, I started feeling really convicted that I might become the rich young ruler, for all I cared about was money, he said. Devlin explained that no matter how much he gave away, as long as he had wealth, it would be difficult for him to minister to the poor and still feel at peace about his own luxury. It was routine for him to put in a full day at Riva only to come home and spend another eight hours researching and buying stocks. He said he would, off, he would often wonder whether or not he would be able to give it all up if Christ showed up one day and asked him to. So rather than wonder, one day Devlin did just that. He gave it all up. In 2010, he quit his job at Ariva, forfeiting a handsome salary, closed the LLC and let, it, let his real estate license expire and began an MA in Theology and Apologetics for Liberty University. While immersing himself in religious studies, Devlin continued to grapple with how to use his talent and passion for finance while still honoring his personal conviction. It, it is kind of a tricky thing, Devlin said. If you give away everything, you make all that... You make all the time, you can't compound it, so it doesn't grow. You need money to make money. I was torn between the two. Then while on a mission trip to India, Devlin had an epiphany. I had this dream that I could run this investment firm, and he goes on to explain how he started his investment firm back up, though on a different structure, and, and uh, made so that uh, he could still make his clients money, but he himself could give away as he felt led. And I just found that really encouraging to read in a Lynchburg business publication um, that's usually dedicated to show how well and how much money they're earning, the businesses are earning, and so forth. Um, I found that in, in another article, and I was like, you know, there, there's really good news out there. There's people that are, are feeling, answering Christ's call in their lives, doing what Christ wants them to do, and that's, that's good news right here in good old Lynchburg. <clears throat> Be not troubled. Mark 13.5 says, uh, Jesus says here, take heed lest any deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I'm Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not, be not troubled. So when ye hear of wars and rumors of wars, when you see deception, Christ says, be not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. 
you know, there's the responsibility for us to believe, or there's the temptation, excuse me, for us to believe that it's our responsibility to right the wrongs and bring justice to the world. Have you ever been there, you know, kind of where you feel like it's, you just got this big burden to bring justice to the world? You might have read, you know, about the needs in India or the awful things that are happening here, uh, maybe in our legislative branches or uh, so forth. You know, you kind of get the feeling like it's my responsibility to, to rise up and change this thing. I've got to pray this thing out. Well, God does call us to pray. He does call us to, to uh, witness. But I think God is telling us here, you know, these things are going to happen. Don't think that you're going to change them. Don't be troubled. Um, I think the remnant will do to remember, and I have a few points here, bring this to a close. The remnant will do well to remember only God can right the wrongs. Only God can bring about world justice. It's not on our shoulders. And if he wants to put it on our shoulders, he'll make it, uh, he'll make it very clear to us. Only God can bring about goodness in the lives of mankind. You know, we've seen evil men use the legislative structure in our society to impose on their fellow men laws of corruption. And this is tragic. It is. Um, but we must remember that the law of God is written on the heart. That's where God writes His laws on the heart. And fighting legislation with legislation, you know, that's been that's been helpful to us. We, we have, it's, it's helped us um, as Christians, in this, especially in this country, to have legislation there that protects us. Um, but fighting legislation with legislation is at its best not very effective, I believe. It doesn't change the heart. A trusting, untroubled child of God, faithfully following God's leading, is going to be, I believe, much more effective in society than a rant at every new evil. Or than ranting at every new evil. You know, not to say that we shouldn't be um, aware of evils and articulating the dangers. I believe we should be. I believe many a Christian has gone over the falls because of being unaware of the danger. But awareness and being troubled, I think, are clearly two different things. We need to articulate where the danger is, but then leave the troubling up to God. Another thing is God has a peculiar ministry for each of us in His troubled, in this troubled world. There will be wars, as Jesus said. There will be pestilence. There will be Ebola. There will be many other things. There will be persecution. And it's not within our power to change what will be. However, we can faithfully minister to whatever God has called us. God didn't call those 7,000 men that didn't bow their knee to Baal. He didn't call them to be an Elijah. And if they had tried to be an Elijah, they, probably, they wouldn't have been successful because God hadn't called them to that. But neither had God called Elijah to be one of those 7,000 men. Uh, so we have, to, we have to fit into what God's calling is for our life and be faithful to that. God is the enabler. The good news is that while the remnant are facing, as they've always faced opposition, it's also true that God's grace is as enabling as it's ever been. 
and it will continue to enable the Christian. The remnant will do to remember the danger overwhelmingly, I believe, is from within. The greater danger is not being toppled in time of persecution or for us to be toppled in time of persecution, but in peacetime. I could have more. I could, there's more that could be said on that. Uh, you look during the time of, of uh, the Vietnam War, World War II, uh, many of the COs um, and those that were did voluntary service or were called to service in hospitals and so forth, many of those lost their faith not because of persecution, but because of, of their not being able to face the struggles from within. More men have been lost to greed, lust, and pride than there will ever be lost to failure in time of persecution, I believe. And I believe it's possible that the war against Christianity is as strong and is as effective against the Christian in America today as it is against the Christian in Egypt or in Iran. I believe that's very possible. The remnant will do to remember also our salvation is sure and it is soon. And I am glad for this. This is encouraging to me. Revelation 22.12 says, And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according to his, as his work shall be. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life, that they may enter in through the gates of the city. So there's good news. Let's focus on the good news. Live the good news. Let the troubling up to God and be faithful. And I believe we can find ourselves that rewarded remnant one day, very soon. God bless you.